Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Lots of political news happening over the week. We are still trying to avoid another government shutdown or the president declaring a national emergency to build the border wall. We're expecting the State of the Union to happen this next week. But the battle for funding over the wall still remains the top priority Democrats have put forward a plan that would increase funding for border security, but not offer any money for a border wall. The president has said that there will be no deal without the wall. Nancy Pelosi is holding firm, saying there will be no money for the wall. We spoke to Steph Kite. She's a reporter for Axios. And we start off by talking about what was in the Democrats' proposals. The key thing to note is that the proposal that Democrats have come forward with does not include any funding for a physical barrier for a wall along the border, which, of course, has been the key issue when it comes to these negotiations. And it's the main reason we had the longest shutdown in U.S. history not too long ago. It does include significantly more money for Customs and Border Patrol, so they would have more money to hire more officers. They would be able to implement some small port of entry technologies, technology to help them catch as people are coming across the border. So while it is a lot more money than they were allocated last year for border protection, it's still going to come down to that wall. And that's something that the president has made very clear he once included. And so this is not likely to win the president's support. And as you said, he is very seriously considering calling a national emergency and potentially trying to find funding for the wall via that route. The negotiations are ongoing between the groups of Democrats and Republicans. The president has already cast doubt on it, saying, hey, stop wasting your time, Republicans. We're not going to get anything from the Democrats. And I know the wall funding is the main point of contention, but the Democrats have proposed a lot of things to increase security at the border with more officers. As you said, technology there at the ports of entry, money to address the humanitarian concerns there at the border for asylum seekers. These are all things that Republicans also want. So barring Mm -hmm. just the wall, taking that out of it, is that a deal that could work? I think this does include a lot of things that Republicans would want. These are a lot of measures that DHS has asked for. We've heard from people from CBP who say, yeah, we really just need more Border Patrol officers. So I think the Democrats are certainly making this an offer that is very hard to say no to for many Republicans, especially as many Republicans in Congress and many conservative groups really don't see the wall as that important. We've Axios has spoken to people who run some of the major conservative immigration groups that advocate against immigration. And even they say the wall isn't really our priority. It really is the president's one priority. And that's where I think we're going to see a lot of tension there, whether Republicans are going to try to get something passed without wall funding and whether Trump really will refuse to sign something. So that is definitely a point of tension right there. There's a lot of polls been done about this topic already. One of the latest Q polls that came out said that voters do buy in on more border security, but that the wall continues to be a bad idea. Support for the border wall actually dropped a couple of percentage points to 41%. Opposition to the wall stays at 55%, a steady number. But the other findings from that poll say 64% say the wall would not reduce violent 
crime. 60% say that it would not reduce the amount of illegal drugs. So when the president says he has so much support on this and, uh, you know, all this stuff is working, is he talking about the public at large or is he referring to his base? He's definitely referring to a very small group of people who are his base. And some of them are people who live along the border. There are arguments that have been made that a border wall would slow down people who are trying to cross the border in certain areas. But again, if you look at the natural landscape, some of the areas that Trump has said there needs to be a wall aren't really areas where people are crossing. And the Trump administration announced this huge capturing of hundreds of pounds of fentanyl and made this a big deal that they caught it crossing across the border, highlighting the issue of drugs coming across the southern border. But even that came through a port of entry. It wasn't through an illegal crossing, and it was something that was caught. And so there are some misconceptions that the Trump administration tries to throw out there when it comes to the border. And these are things that, again, a wall won't necessarily fix. There are plenty of issues and ways that border security can be improved and the immigration system can be improved. But most people would say the wall wouldn't necessarily help with many of these issues. We're on our way to this February 15th deadline where, you know, if a deal is not made, some action seems that there will be taken. It really is a messaging war at this point. The White House and the president are going to continue to beat the drum and Democrats are taking a little victory lap after the last win that they had and really saying, you know, this is not a national emergency. We're going to have the State of the Union next week. Obviously, the president has a huge platform there to make his case. Just even after all this national Nancy Pelosi just flat out said there's not going to be any wall money in this legislation. Mm -hmm. The president going back to let's just call them walls and stop playing games. A wall is a wall. So he's back to that terminology. I mean, this is just a messaging war at this point. It really is. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the president addresses this in the State of the Union and how this comes to a conclusion when we're, as we're heading towards February 15th. This is obviously not in a great moment for the president. We've seen him cave more than once to Nancy Pelosi over the State of the Union address, originally saying, okay, fine, I will not speak until the government is shut down is over and then caving again and signing off on a short-term spending bill. And so we'll have to see, is he going to try to spend this? Is he going to end up giving in to Pelosi a third time or is the negative criticism he's been receiving going to amp him up? Is that going to be additional reason for him to go ahead and declare a national emergency and deal with the very likely legal repercussions of that instead of caving to what Nancy Pelosi is demanding? Steph Kite reports Porter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. One of the more interesting stories we covered over the week was about this whole community of content creators on YouTube that are blind. And while YouTube doesn't seem like a natural fit for someone who is visually impaired, these creators have become voices for an often overlooked group of people who use the internet just as much as anybody else. Um, they're also all over the place on Instagram. We spoke to Emma Gray Ellis, she's a writer at Wired, about these blind YouTubers and their effort to make the internet more accessible. I got sucked into watching a ton of these videos from these blind YouTube content creators, and that's where we started talking. So I went down, I think, probably the same rabbit hole that you did. It's a really fascinating community, and if you are a sighted person, it's not necessarily a world that you'd be necessarily aware of, which I think is where that comment that Casey made right. is really coming from. The, it's, there's a sort of broad ignorance among the sort of sighted community about the ways in which 
blind people use technology to really expand their world in a way that was not possible at all before the smartphone. And so these creators on YouTube are really, I think when you speak to most of them, they think of their channel as serving sort of two functions. The first and probably most important is to be a kind of rallying place for the VI or visually impaired community because these are people who are otherized when they're out on the internet or like you said, they're told that they're liars. And then their secondary purpose is to serve as educators for people who can see, who just don't necessarily have a window into this world at all. And that's where I went down the rabbit hole. It it was very fascinating to see how normal they operate. The spectrum of blindness varies. You know, not everybody just sees pitch black. People can see maybe vague shapes and figures or just light sources. And a lot of times people would use cameras to really magnify something so they can see it up close and in greater detail. That's the difficulty with things like YouTube and Instagram even. These are such visual mediums that people that are sighted don't get it a lot of times. I believe the statistic is something like 90% of visually impaired people have some kind of remaining vision. I think often it's light sensitivity. But in the case of Casey and the other person who uses cameras as kind of magnifying glasses is uh, illegally blind filmmaker named James Raff, who also has a YouTube channel. And they were using cameras since at a really young age. Casey told me a story about going to the zoo and bringing a camera with her not to take pictures, but to zoom in as far as she could so she could see the animals. And so it's an interesting way in which something that people think would be not inclusive or exclusionary is actually something that, that opened these people's worlds in ways that certainly didn't expect when I started this project. YouTube has expanded its accessibility for obviously for creators, but also for consumers as well. So blind users could are, are able to access a little bit better. So they do different things like screen readers and, and uh, other things that are available to them so they can be on the platform a little more naturally. As far as I know, the sort of first fully blind YouTuber was a guy named Tommy Edison who does film reviews. And he said that when he first got on the platform that he couldn't navigate it even a little bit. And since then, they've added keyboard sh- shortcuts and screen readers, but screen readers are like a separate software. But what the web developers have to do is fill in fields so something is being read aloud for the screen reader user to sort of mouse over that area. And so they've really improved people's ability to use the platform, which if you come at it from a perspective that isn't necessarily cited, is as much audio as it is visual. One of my favorite ones was the blind film critic talking Mm -hmm. about how, you know, he's listening to movies, experiencing the movies, And it's like, you know what, I just didn't connect with it because I'm lost in the shuffle of all this nonsense audio. And I always, this sticks in my head. I was watching something about a a blind lady talking about her favorite show and it was Everybody Loves Raymond. And they asked the question, Mm -hmm. well, how can you enjoy it? You can't see it. You know, she saw a few seasons before she went blind. So she remembers what the characters look like. So just hearing them and how they yell and and laugh and Mm -hmm. all that stuff and operate, she can remember it. So it's almost as if she is watching it. It's the same thing for, I uh, I would assume, for the blind film critic, you know, watching these movies. He's just going to tell you my experience and how well I can follow the story with sound. One of the features that some of these creators are advocating that YouTube add, or at least make a little bit easier to do, is something called audio description. And they already have this for a number of movies and and other platforms, is when you have a voice actor supply a 
additional narration for people who aren't sighted. And so if you had a scene that was the camera panning over a mountain range, then there'd be someone in this audio description telling people what those mountains look like. Things like that are really, really helpful in, you know, these people are already having a pretty full experience with audio and it's possible to make it better for them. And on YouTube, all that would really take is adding the ability to upload an additional audio track that you can toggle on and off in the same way that you toggle captions on and off. James Rath is a big advocate for that and has spoken to YouTube developers about it. Emma Gray Mm -hmm. Ellis, writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I always love stories about flying and being up in the air. It's such a crazy time to be in an airplane packed in with tons of people. You never know what's going to happen. It's always unexpected. The new thing right now is that flight attendants now have to start hustling for tips. There's a new policy at Frontier Airlines that lets passengers tip the flight attendants whenever they use their cards to pay for drinks or snacks. In a lot of cases, they also, they're also they also selling credit card subscriptions right there on the plane, uh, something to get some air miles for yourself. Reaction is mixed with a lot of people welcoming the extra income in these tips. Other flight attendants are saying that this new sales job bogs them down when passenger safety is really the main concern. My producer Miranda joins me to break this whole thing down. We start off by talking about this new policy at Frontier Airlines. Starting January 1st, Frontier Airlines began allowing, like you said, individual flight attendants to collect tips from passengers. And it's just like when you go to Starbucks or you take a ride in a taxi, the buttons pop up with the options, you know, 10%, 15%, 20%, or no tip at all. American United, Delta, Spirit, Frontier, and others have flight attendants making in-cabin pitches for the credit cards, like you said, and that's tied to their frequent flyer programs. The commission rates are different for everyone, but typically it's about $50 per approved application. American says that while it's voluntary to make the sales pitch in flight, most of them do want to participate because those commissions add up. Honestly, these credit card deals might be really good, especially if you do tend to fly a lot. You do want to save those miles. Those things are beneficial. So they're kind of worthwhile pitches for the passenger and for the flight attendant who could be making some of these bonuses. But with regards to the tipping front, Frontier is one of these ultra low cost airlines where you basically need to pay for everything. They charge for sodas and snacks. You need to pay for baggage fees, overhead compartments. I think I read that you have to pay for the tickets are cheaper, but they charge you for everything else that way. They start this thing where, as you said, you buy a soda, you buy a drink. It's going to say have to bring up that tip line in 10, 15 and 20 percent increments. And it reminds me of the story that we did on the podcast earlier about tipping etiquette uh, with all these iPad tipping systems. Now you have to almost tip right in front of the barista or the store clerk right there. And it kind of creates an embarrassing thing like, oh, maybe I don't want to tip you that much. So no tip, you know, with regards to the flight attendants, they say that uh, it's like kind of half and half. Some of them like it because they get a little extra money. Other people say it devalues their work. They're primarily there for safety. And the snacks and and giving you all your drinks and everything is a secondary part of the job. But that's the thing that we see mostly as passengers. That's the visible part of the job is we don't see them when they're attending to a life-threatening emergency, maybe in the back of the plane that we're not supposed to know about. So we see them as sort of like servers up in the air, waiters and waitresses. That's that's what I see. One flight attendant in particular, her name is Jennifer Sala says that half of the workforce likes the tip because they rely on that extra income and the other half is offended. They're humiliated by it because they weren't trained to sell drinks. And 
a lot of these airlines are now even incentivizing them by making them have quotas to sell more alcoholic drinks or what right. have you during the flight to up those increases. I mean, as a flight attendant, you're going to have to start identifying the passengers like, well, okay, they're here to party. Yeah. <laughs> Let me go try to sell them another but vodka But they do soda. because they say, you know, flights that are to Las Vegas, those people tend to tip better than overnight passengers who want to sleep on their red-eye yeah, flight. Yeah, if you're on somewhere. a red-eye flight, you just want to close your eyes and not be bothered, basically. So where does the opportunity come to sell some of this stuff? One of the things that I did not know, and Miranda, you and I were talking this uh, before we started, was how they get paid. Flight attendants, their clock doesn't start until those cabin doors shut. That's so weird. And, and that's why they say that it's, uh, Frontier and maybe some of these other airlines are starting this tipping stuff because as a way to supplement that. They work a lot of off-clock hours, and this might be a way to help. Other people have said that this started three years ago, the general tipping thing, when they were going through some nasty negotiations about pay increases for the flight attendants. And this was just a way to quiet them down, maybe offer them a little more money without really giving into the negotiations. One thing to note is that this tipping program, Oscar, has resulted in millions of dollars in tips since the inception three years ago. A lot of the major airlines haven't caught on to this. They still don't accept any tips. Some airlines say maybe accept tips if the customer is really insistent, but generally they have rules against tipping. But these ultra low fare cost ones, Frontier starting it, maybe Spirit Airlines and other ones might take notice and say, hey, if it's working over there, it could work over here as well. Right. It's funny in all of this of, you know, you have to start identifying what really would constitute a tip. Hey, are you helping me a lot more than some of these other passengers if I ring my bell, you know, how fast do you get here, all that stuff. <laughs> there was a story recently, it was just so disgusting, but this lady of all people deserves a tip. It included an overweight passenger who was on an LA to Taipei flight. That's a long flight. She had to go and clean him after he went to the restroom. You're going to make me tell this story now, yes, Oscar? Yes, I am going to make you okay. tell it. A flight attendant for, I'm going to call it EVA, EVA Air, and they are one of those airlines, they only employ a female cabin crew. So this poor woman, she had a passenger who was confined to a wheelchair and he told the flight attendants he needed assistance to use the restroom. This was about two hours into the flight. One poor woman got tasked with helping this man use the bathroom. And so she had to remove his underwear, which she felt was beyond the oh, scope of her responsibilities as I a would, flight attendant. I would agree. I would agree. Right. And so uh, when she told him that she couldn't help him do this, he started screaming and threatened to just relieve oh, himself on the floor. My and then once his uh, junk was exposed, another colleague came in and brought up a blanket to kind of give him some privacy, cover up. And he got angry, slapped the hand away and said he didn't want his junk covered. He just wanted her to remove his underwear so he could use the toilet. And as she was wearing three gloves to wipe his bottom, she says he was moaning and groaning as if he was pleased by this. This is just a horrible story. And it's indicative of some of the crap that flight attendants have to go through. Literally. She didn't want to do it, obviously. But the only reason why they gave in was we also can't have him staying in the bathroom for the remainder of the flight. Who knows what would happen to him in there? It's not safe if something happens. That's two hours into a really long flight. So, yeah. I mean, you have to kind of do that. Thankfully, the union, the flight union uh, is standing behind her. And they're, yeah, I don't know if they're going to sue the passenger. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.